0: We're going to be in the book of Daniel, chapter 6, if you want to turn there, good to be with you today. Um, it is good to, it's good to simplify things sometimes like that, you know, and um, so I'm grateful to our musicians and for John leading us uh, this morning. Daniel chapter 6, chapter uh, 6. Come to the end of a of kind of a little series in July I guess through some Old Testament stories that a lot of us a lot of us at least us Baptist kids probably studied a lot when we were coming up through the ranks a little bit and um, you know we looked at David and Goliath and then uh, the fiery furnace and then last week and today talking about Daniel and the lion's Den and uh, looking forward to just seeing where God takes this thing um so let me let me begin a little bit with some backstory on on Daniel, just like daniel as a as a person um, he was uh He was Jewish, so as a young Hebrew man uh he was trained in the faith and he was very well educated uh, so it's we aren't really sure how old he was uh, at the time of when the storyline of the book of Daniel begins, but let's say that he was. 20 or so, probably a safe estimate. Um, so uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, he brings his armies in, they destroy uh, Jerusalem, they uh, take a bunch of captives, and they begin deporting them back to Babylon. So Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they were all in that first group of deported um, Hebrews who were brought back there. Uh, very quickly, they recognized that this kid was really smart. He had a lot of leadership capabilities, and so they found they thought that he could be useful, as well as his three friends. So all four of them uh, kind of got brought into uh, this kind of training program to where they would try to to strip them of their Jewish identity, make them think like Babylonians, and then put them in leadership over different parts of the government. And so they, um, they changed their names to try to get that part of their identity stripped away. They tried to re-educate them. They tried to change everything about them all the way down to their diets and uh, tried to just make them useful. And all three of them were, were useful, but Dan- there was something special about Daniel. And so he got promoted a little bit higher than the other guys and wound up essentially being the right-hand man to the king. Not only King Nebuchadnezzar, but then uh, the the next uh, nation that came in and conquered them, he became like really high in their ranks as well. So there was definitely something special about him, and everyone could see that. Um, and so Daniel maintained these high positions of authority no matter who was the government in charge. And so when you when you start to think about that at first, you know, you're like, well, I mean, if you have to get deported at least you're like living in the king's palace, right? And you're eating like his food and you're like, you have a power and authority, you know? Because uh, some of those exiles were, they were digging canals, you know? Like they were treated as slaves. And so at first it's like, well, if you, if you have to be in exile, at least, at least you're living right, you know? Um, but we ha- what we have to keep in mind is that even though his circumstances may appear to be ideal, this was a terrible, terrible thing for him. Like this was, uh, this was an awful set of circumstances for anyone who was, who was Jewish. And here's a few reasons why. One would be um, to watch the temple get destroyed would have been the worst thing that could happen to you. Because the temple, this is Solomon's temple that David planned and gather all the materials. Solomon saw its, he oversaw its construction. Solomon dedicated it. This is where the Ark of the Covenant stayed. This is where the presence of God dwelled with his people. This was the most sacred thing that anyone has ever seen. This is, in modern day times, like this is the, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. Like that's, that's where this, this was. This is where, um, where Abraham um, and went to sacrifice Uh, Isaac. I mean, this was like the pinnacle of everything for their entire lives. And to watch a, a nation come in, destroy your city, but to destroy the temple would have been the worst thing imaginable to you if you were Jewish. And so he watched that happen. And just to have your entire nation disgraced, it would have been, it would have been awful. Uh, there's not a lot of mention of his family or his friends or what happened to them. Um, but you can assume that everyone was either killed or marched into exile and spread out everywhere. You know, So an army invades and destroys everything and then marches your family and your friends into all kinds of different places and you just never know what's gonna happen to them. Um, to be marched into a foreign land had to be terrifying. And then to be forced to serve the very king who came in and ordered all of that destruction. The one who gave the green light to such horrible things. And now you're being forced to eat his food, study his ways, and being forced essentially into power in this like corrupt foreign government. It really was, it was a bad deal. And he may have, they may have had good things to eat and they may have had a comfortable places to sleep. But internally, this was a, t- his life was a terrible, terrible life. He was in an awful situation. And yet, you know, like we, we see him like uh, cooperate with authority. We see him hold his ground when the situation called for it. Uh, and overall, he just simply remains faithful to God and to his people, and so I began to ask the question. I was like, okay, how does how does someone, how do you do that? You know, like how do you maintain good perspective when life turns out so differently than you hoped? And as I, as I kind of pondered that, I began to realize like how many conversations I've had over the years and how many times I've thought the same thing in my life where you're like, man, I really thought at this point in my life, Things would look differently than they do, and not 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 across the board in every area of life. But it's a very common, maybe even universal thing, to look at your life and to say, "I really thought by this point, it be things would be different." You know, maybe maybe career. You know, maybe you thought by whatever stage, you know, your career would have morphed and changed. Maybe marriage and family, you know, maybe, maybe you're like, man, marriage is not at all what I thought it was going to be, you know, or kids are awesome, but they are a lot of work, you know, and it's draining or, or maybe the lack of marriage and the lack of family, you know, maybe you're thinking, I really would have thought if you'd asked me as a, as a high school freshman, what my life would look like at whatever age you are and you like, I wouldn't have thought this, you know, it could be, it could be anything. It could be friendships. It could be a general, like, the quality of life that you have, it could be the church that you're a part of, it could be, um, it could be like maybe something where you're like, yeah, I kind of thought by this stage I wouldn't still struggle with this thing, you know, I thought I would have overcome this particular sin pattern or or this set of insecurities or uh, whatever it may be or, you know, there's that part of us that always thinks that like in the next stage of life our walk with Jesus will just be naturally deeper, you know, and then sometimes people are like, I really thought by the time I was here, I'd, I'd have this prayer thing figured out, you know? Like spiritual disciplines would just be more a part of, of life for me. And again, not, a, not across the board in every area of life, but it seems like, they're, like we all kind of have this struggle with the fact that things haven't really turned out like we had hoped maybe when we were younger. And a lot of this comes down to really like our circumstances and our feelings, right? Like, so our circumstances, like, so life just kind of happens and sometimes it's exactly like you planned it and sometimes it is not at all like you planned it. So our circumstances shift and then that evokes certain emotions and feelings within us. And the interplay between circumstances and feelings, we tend to like let that tell us a lot of things about ourselves or about other people or about the church or about God or whatever it may be. And then you have the scriptures telling us to live by faith and not by sight, but yet sight, man, it's hard to ignore it sometimes, you know? It's it's hard to not let those circumstances and the feelings that they evoke kind of push us around. And so to live by faith and not by sight is such a challenging thing to do in reality. It sounds great on paper, it preaches super well, but when it comes to practicality, sometimes it's a little bit hard to do, And and yet here's Daniel with this really difficult life. And I'm not talking about like, it was a rough couple of years and then it all got really better. I'm talking about his entire life was difficult. And yet he remains faithful. He seems to somehow figure out how to live by faith and not by sight. Even though sight and the feelings that that evokes were probably such dominant things. So I really started to, to to dig around and try to figure out and just ask the lord how did he become this kind of person you know like i want to be this kind of person do you want to be this kind of person i I assume that you want to become that so let's just assume that all of us are like i want to keep becoming someone more and more and more and more who doesn't let circumstances and feelings push me around who just stays faithful no matter what so i started digging and i came away with this here's like this one overarching conclusion for this sermon um it's simply this, that Daniel made the faith-filled choice to submit, seeing his life's mission as a submission to God's mission. Well, there's a lot of missions in there. I never really thought about the word submission a whole lot before, and um, I'm not saying this is like a universally applicable definition of it, okay? So some some conversations, I wouldn't say like, just, yeah, think of it this way, but if we're thinking about our lives and submitting our lives and our lives being one of submission, if submission literally means a mission underneath a greater mission, then Daniel was like, okay, so, so God has this big mission and I'm underneath that. My life is a submission of his greater mission. And so I'm going to choose to live by faith and not by sight and submit my life to this greater thing. So that's kind of where I'm going. Let me tell you how I got there look at look in Daniel chapter six, quick recap daniel 's enemies had convinced the king to pass an ordinance that said whoever prays or petitions any God or man for thirty days other than the king gets thrown into a den of lions. Um, so look at verse ten so that 's the ordinance. It all gets passed, and here 's what Daniel does. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously okay so let's leave that verse up there so daniel gets word hey if you if you pray you get thrown the den of lions he's like cool be right back goes home goes upstairs windows open on the second story where people can see him toward jerusalem and prays three times a day just like he had been doing so my first thought of is like, as I'm studying through it and reading, and it's like, okay, in that situation, would I pray or would I not pray? Because so, of course, we can make it by ourselves. So I'm, like, and I'm like, of course, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't pray. Or would I pray? Maybe, I, yeah, I would pray. I would definitely pray. Like, I don't know if I would pray. Maybe I'd like close the windows and pray. So I kind of thought through that, and then my thoughts went to a, kind of a different route and was like, man, if, if, if that became the law of the land, like, how much would that interrupt my daily routine? So I kind of was like, oh man, that's a tough one. So, um, so I kind of sat on that for a little bit, like. But then I went to another thing. I was like, it kind of was, like I was saying this a second ago, like why why did he, why was it so public? Like, couldn't he have just prayed in private? Like, isn't that a part of the beauty of prayer? Is that you can pray without ceasing? You can pray as you go. You don't have to be in church, heads bowed, eyes closed to pray. You can pray anywhere. That's what Jesus has you know told us, and so. So I started digging and looking into it a little bit. He could have prayed in private, but then again he kind of couldn't. And this is why. Don't turn here, but we're going to put it on the screen. In 1 Kings chapter 8. This is where Solomon dedicates the temple. So the temple is constructed and he has there's this this inc- incredible dedication uh, ceremony and he's praying this prayer and he goes through these different circumstances and this is what he says in 46 through 51. He says, if, if they sin against you, just about the people of Israel, if they sin against you, there's no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, look at this part, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Okay, so he's describing the exact situation that Daniel's in. Yet, if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, quote, We've sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. Unquote. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and what? Pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers the city that you have chosen and the house that I've built for your name, AKA the temple in Jerusalem. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them, look at this, compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. So Daniel, growing up in, let's just call it the church, let's say, growing up in the church, would have known this prayer of dedication. Like it was written down, it was studied, it was memorized, it was prayed. So when he gets marched off into exile, he knows exactly what to do because God through Solomon has already told him what to do when you get to the land when you're in the land pray and repent and there's that detail in there it says pray toward the land toward the city and if you know anything about like our Jewish friends they are very literal and so Daniel Probably I'm just guessing this. I'm going to ask him one day. But I'm just going to say for now, let's assume that he, since he had authority, when it came time for where he was going to live, he's like, I want, some, I want to make sure i got some windows facing Jerusalem. Because God said to pray toward the land. And so I'm going to pray toward the land. Like literally in that direction. I'm going to face it. Because he said to do that. And to repent and and to ask for like to be treated with, to be treated with compassion, and so that's you know. so Daniel was just doing what he was trained to do, so could he have prayed in private, yeah, and he probably did, but God said to pray toward the land, and he was going to pray toward the land now for me, that was enough, just knowing that he was just being obedient and acting in faith and praying prayers of repentance on behalf of his people. that was enough for me in my initial search of like what makes him that kind of person. It's like, oh, well, he just believed the word of God. Like it's, that's just that simple. That God, God has, has given us these, like these Bibles that, um, that we should cherish and study and memorize and like live out. And so he was just like, oh yeah, it says it right here. I'm gonna do this. in with the, the level of scripture that they had at the time, like I get all that. But then something else bothered me look, like, so the story keeps going. Uh, He's praying, his enemies, they, they tattle on him, they go tell the king, and so they throw him uh, into the lion's den. The king really likes Daniel, and he's, he's nervous about it. So if you look at verse 19, it says this, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. So that, at first, you know, you're like, hey, Daniel got rescued. And like, But something in his rationale there kind of bothered me at first. Because verse 22, uh, God sent his angel, shut the lion's mouths; they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. That at, at first sounds like karma to me, you know? It's like, yeah, I was good, so nothing bad happened to me. There it is. And that seems to go against what a lot of the scriptures are teaching, you know. So I was like, that's what it appears to be at first, but and that kind of bothered me. I was like, there's got to be more, It has to be a, another explanation. You can't have something that contradicts the rest of what scripture teaches. Scripture is very clear that the rain comes on the just and the unjust. That life happens to, uh, to those who know Jesus and those who don't know Jesus. And like I've talked about in previous weeks, sometimes God rescues you and sometimes he doesn't. He's always able, but sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. So there has to be a different explanation than what hit me at first. And then I started looking at the, the whole storyline of Daniel and just looking at just things and praying, and I don't think it's really a statement about karma at all. I think it's a statement about God's activity. I think he's saying, well, God has something to say here. Like, God is at work here. Uh, God has a message to send to you, king, through this turn of events, like God is speaking to us about something. God is saying that he is, he is in control of this, that he is the ultimate judge here. And um, he wants you to know it, the king, and he also wants everyone else to know it. Like he wants this story to be told for a long time. And so Daniel was just like, basically not making the rescue about him as much as he was like no like there's there's a bigger narrative happening god's in charge he has a message so daniel just sees himself as a participant in this bigger story that god's writing where does he where does that come from though like where where does he get this this system of beliefs well it comes from a guy named jeremiah if you want to turn just go back a little bit a couple of books into jeremiah 25 if you don't turn there that's fine we're gonna have it on the screens too but in jeremiah 25 you see something that to me is interesting it may not be interesting to you it won't hurt my feelings but just being honest um so Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel were all contemporaries. They all lived at the same time. They all experienced the, the deportation of, of Israel, but they went, they went to different places. And so Jeremiah was in kind of a group that escaped to Egypt. Ezekiel was in uh, one of the groups digging canals uh, in more of like an enslavement, like labor camp type thing. And then Daniel was in the palace. And it's very unlikely that they all knew each other or, or had ever met. But Jeremiah was a very known prophet in Jerusalem. And so 25, like chapter 25, he delivers this prophetic word that Daniel would have, would have known. Like it was a known thing. He references it in Daniel chapter 9. So we know that he's familiar, like, like he would have known this. This was a very well known prophecy at the time. He would have been younger than Jeremiah, but he would have, have known this was there. Perhaps maybe heard Jeremiah teach or something at the time, but chapter 25 would have been a part of his thinking. So look us look at what Jeremiah has to say. Verse one, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Look at this. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay. So Nebuchadnezzar has just taken over in Babylon. So this would be before they came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Verse two, Jeremiah spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. If you skip to verse eight, so he kind of like, is like, hey, God's about to do something and you're not gonna like it. Verse eight, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants. And against all these surrounding nations, I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land, meaning Jerusalem and the area, shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall be shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Remember that. Then after 70 years are completed, I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Okay, so that's super dark. All right, let's just admit it. Um, and and God deals with Israel in a very, it's a very unique relationship, Okay. And the Old Testament has a lot of stuff in it that's like kind of a head scratcher. Like, I don't really understand how this works. This seems really, whatever. Uh, And so we just kind of have to accept the fact that we're not working with all the same information as God is and that kind of stuff. So there's a lot going on here. What I want us to focus on though is that God says, Babylon is coming and they're going to destroy this place and they're going to march you off and you're going to be with them under their control for 70 years. After 70 years, I'm going to deal with them But for 70 years, it's going to happen to you. So this 70-year timeline was established. Daniel knew this and believed it. Then, while they're in captivity, Jeremiah sends another letter to the exiles, which we find in chapter 29. Now, this is is a familiar passage to a lot of people because it has this really great, like, verse in there. But the context of it is a little bit different. So in Jeremiah 29, so Daniel is, now he's in exile. He's like, yeah, he was right in 25. They get get a letter and they start to read it. And this is what Jeremiah says, verse one. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet sent to Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, let's get to verse four. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For this says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. And gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, and I will bring you back to this place from which from which I sent you into exile. He says, "Hey, these seventy years—don't waste them, because I'm doing something. At the end of this seventy years, I need a remnant to to bring back. You got to keep the generation going." You got to build some houses so you can have some families. You got to you got to know how to plant crops so you can live, but also when you come back so that you know how to like feed yourselves. Don't lose sight of the fact that I am at work. And so Daniel took this story arc very seriously. From the second kings passage about what you're in exile and then the Jeremiah 25 and 29 passages where he's like, "Hey, 70 years I'm going to do this, but but then this great amazing thing is going to happen." He took it all seriously, and even into his nineties, when those seventy years were almost up. If you read chapter nine, he's praying to God and he's saying, "Hey, you said seventy years, and I've been doing the flip calendar. It's almost time." He reminds God of this promise, so we see him being faithful all the way toward the like later end of his life. He just made this faith-filled choice to submit. He saw his, his life's mission as a submission to God's greater mission. And so with every twist and turn of, of his life, Daniel trusted that God was at work. So what does this have to do with us? I, I hope that all made sense. I, I never really know. It makes sense to me, but I've been sitting in this for like two weeks, so... But but when you stop and you think about his life, I think there are two big things that we can like pull into our lives. One would be that he well, we have to know and believe the promises of God like so Daniel, like he he knew the word of God, which is where these promises are found, so we have to know the word right that's why we study it, that's why we pray it, that's why um, like yeah this is how we know there are a lot of great books a lot of great podcasts a lot of terrible books a lot of terrible podcasts right but there's nothing that is alive like this book is alive that's how we know these promises So we have to know him, but he didn't just know what 1 Kings 8, you know, what Solomon said in his prayer. He didn't just know what Jeremiah said in 25 or 29. He believed that those were the words of God coming to him. That's the thing. We have to not only know what the Bible says, we have to believe that it is God who is saying it to us. So we have to know it ourselves, and we have to trust the people that are pointing us back to it. You have to believe that God is still speaking through people, but he speaks through people who are like pointing us back to the word. And so we have to know and believe the promises of God that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he has gone to prepare a place for you, that he's with you always, even to the very end, that no matter what twists and turns your life is going through, how those circumstances and feelings are, are always moving on, that God is this steady, good, wonderful, beautiful, loving Father who has made these promises that undergird everything else. And when we know we believe the promises, we also have to believe that He is at work. That in everything that is happening, everything fits into that work. That, that, Today you're walking through something that is a part of this greater mission that is also undergirded by his promises. Like it's it's both. You're surrounded. Greater mission over you, promises underneath you, presence of God to the left, to the right. Like you could not be set up better. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, it, it fits into this. Whatever season of life you may look at right now, if life kind of zigged and you thought it was going to zag, you know, we've all been there. But you know what's still in place? The greater mission and the promises. Empowered by his presence among us. Dan- Daniel believed all that fit together. That whatever the circumstances, terms of events, whatever frustration or discouragement or disappointment or diagnosis or victory or healing or freedom or restoration, all of this we bring into submission to him we're saying my life's mission is just a submission of your mission and your promises guarantee something like peter calls them these great and precious promises it's it's beautiful but it's hard sometimes i know it is it's hard sometimes to look at life and give it the old like man that's awesome Glory be to God, you know? There are some times where you just need to weep, you know? You, you need to cry. You need to be able to admit this is hard. This is, like, I hate this. I would imagine if, if Daniel, like, so he, from what the scriptures tell us, that's 70 years he lived every, every one of those years. You don't think Daniel had some times when he was like 70? I mean, come on. It's a long time. You don't think there were some days when he was frustrated? You don't think there were some times when he was just so fed up with waiting, trusting? Of course. Of course he doesn't write about that in his memoirs, right? I mean, now David, David gets pretty real in the Psalms. When these things are in place, though, like when we when we know and believe his promises and we... we Deeply believe that he is at work among us, and we know that he's with us and he's for us. We not only follow in Daniel's footsteps, but we follow in the in the example of our rabbi. When Jesus was in the garden and he says, Not my will, but your will be done, he's doing the same thing. He's saying, I know that you're at work. This is gonna stink. <laughs> but you have made promises. He entrusted himself to the father and said, okay, let's go. Let's keep going. So I want you to be encouraged this morning to know that your, your life's mission is a submission of God's mission. Whatever it is that you're facing, it fits into it. And you can walk by faith and not by sight. And the way that we do that is not is by not listening to our circumstances or our feelings. We listen to what he has to say, and we relax into that. We submit. We are open handed when we bring it to him. And so, whatever that looks like for you in this, whatever you're going through, or maybe it's for someone else. You know, maybe that's what you've been thinking about this whole time. Um, There's nothing that's wasted. Even even the difficult things, even the things that seem unredeemable, nothing is wasted. So don't give up. Don't let each other give up. He's given us like these relationships with each other because there are times when we all want to quit and you need people around you. They're like, no, we're not going to quit. It's not what we do. It's not who our God is. And you're like, oh yeah, okay, I got you, got you. So there isn't, there isn't anything more powerful in guaranteeing then then like what God has to say to us, so I can say this, I can point you to here, I can you know I could do all, this whole thing, other people can affirm it, but what we really need is we need God to like confirm that these things are true, that these promises have been made, that everything is secure, that the great and precious promises and His mission at work that it's all intact and no one wants that confirmed more than God. So we have to put in our, ourselves in a position to listen. So like we prayed the, like at the beginning when John was leading us through that of, like, of just listening and being still and, and letting him speak to it. And you can do that in a bunch of different ways. And that's one reason why we respond in different ways because whatever is stirring within you, there's, like, this outlet has got to be there, you know? And so we sing, you know, we'll sing some more and we'll pray. If you want to come kneel here and pray, you can do that. A communion. To me, that's one of the, one of these great gifts that God has given to us because he says, Hey, I'm gonna give you a tangible practice. The body of Christ broken for you. You dip the bread in the juice, the blood of Christ poured out for you. We give you something tangible to do. And in this tangible like action, I'm going to remind you that I'm with you and I'm for you. And I've, I have secured this. There is something, there's some, something special that happens when we, when we take communion. There, there is this really gracious exchange that happens there. And so we'll have communion that's open as an option. And so you can, you're welcome in our communion line. You don't have to be a member here. If, if you want the grace of Jesus, if you believe that he's offering himself to you, and you want to say yes, you're welcome to come and receive that. And so pray, sing, receive communion, however you want to do that. Well, a couple of us will be on the front row to pray with you if you want. Um, but I would challenge you to, uh, to not leave it here, whatever he may be stirring, through the songs or the prayer time or the scriptures. So how about we all stand? I'm going to pray for us. We'll have a, a little time of response before we go. And this is your, this is your time with the Lord. And it's our time with each other. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm, I'm so grateful that, um, that you have not left us on our own to try to battle our way through the ups and downs of life, the disappointments and the way things don't turn out like we'd hoped. You haven't left us to navigate that and all the feelings that come along with it. That you have freed us from that prison and you have connected us to what's real and true through your son and through your spirit dwelling in us and through the book that you have written that we can know and read it and memorize it. You've given us these tangible things. And we thank you for the practice of communion and and how that connects us to you and to each other in in a beautiful way that we can't really explain and so God, in these next few moments, whether it's praying or singing or receiving communion or whatever it may be, God, I know that you've been speaking from from before we showed up here today, you've been at work. Because this is a part of, the, of that larger narrative, that bigger story arc that you're writing. Today fits into that. So help us to, uh, to sense that, into, not just to know it, but to believe it that so you help with our unbelief. There's a part of us that's still kind of hesitant. Help our unbelief. Because we know that no matter what is going on and circumstantially what we're feeling, that those things are in place, that you, uh, that you are the rock that doesn't change. So in these moments, help us to respond in spirit and in truth that this would be everything you had in mind uh, for us today. Love you. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. The tables are open.